Hey, what's up? It's Mr. Bill. The track you're listening to right now is the result of a 35-hour tutorial series where I recorded the process of making this song from start to finish and explained myself along the way. If you're interested in learning how to make music or sharpening your craft, go to mrbillstunes.com and check it out. Enjoy the tune. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. sick all right we're rolling um well yeah thanks for coming on the podcast man i I appreciate having you on again and um yeah apologies for i think it was yesterday we were supposed to do it for the first time in a long ass time i just woke up at like 6 p.m for some reason (laughs) yeah yeah no worries man i mean thanks for having me on again anytime for real so you, you were telling me you just got back from china yeah, I did. I So this is the start of my tour, which is my first solo headlining tour, um, which is like huge for me. And the first th- the first three shows on this tour were um, Nagoya and Tokyo, Japan, and then this huge festival in Wuhan, China. <laughs> and I was basically over there for uh, I think about 10 days total. I left on the 28th and then got back on the 7th. Um, and it was amazing. And, but now like I'm back home and, uh, I'm still kind of adjusting from like from jet lag and the, the, uh, the time zone shift. And it's been really weird. Cause I never, this was, that was my first time in Asia or like that far, like rotated around the earth. And so, um, I'm finding that I, developed a biphasic sleep schedule just naturally so i've been waking up at like 1 a.m and then going back to sleep after several hours and then waking up at like around 1 p.m and that's been happening for the past few days since since being back and uh it's kind of disorienting um so i'm gonna try to um just stay up probably probably tonight i'm just probably gonna stay up for 24 hours until the next time it's like an find like the appropriate time that I want to go to sleep and then actually try to fall asleep then and just see if that works. But I've been trying like melatonin and stuff and it's not, it's not cutting it. Um, so yeah, (laughs) that's what's been going on for me. Oh, your, your mic cut out again. Is that better? There we go. All right, cool. My bad. I guess this cable is sketchy or something. Um, yeah, anytime I've ever tried to reset my sleep schedule by staying up, the extra day to make sure that I'm like tired at the right time the next night or whatever. I ended up just sleeping for 24 hours to like re- <laughs> recoup the 24 hours that I stayed awake for. And then Damn. I'm like back in the exact same position, but I just feel like shit. Damn. I, I'm kind of afraid of that happening, but I feel like it's worth a shot. You know, I might have to sacrifice some, some sleep just to get back on a normal schedule. But yeah, it's been, it's been weird. One thing a therapist told me once when I was talking to them about sleep shit and like how I 
can't control when I go to sleep kind of like I I don't really choose like if I get tired and if I, if I try to go to sleep when I'm not tired I just end up laying there and, and stuff and they're like all right well you can't choose when you go to sleep or when you get tired but you can choose when you wake up so mm. maybe just like bite the bullet one day and even if you go to sleep at 6 a.m just force yourself to wake up at 9 a.m or whatever yeah yeah I mean that's it makes sense it does but also fuck that <laughs> I know I mean I'm gonna have to do that shit anyway because I'm about to play more shows uh, next week oh, <laughs> it's, where at? it's ridiculous I'm gonna be playing the show in um, Kansas City on the uh, 18th and then Minneapolis on the 22nd and then Honolulu on the 25th so like oh, cool I've never actually close. Play, played in Hawaii before and then like really far yeah this is gonna be my i think sec yes yeah, this is gonna be my second time playing last time i think it was 2014 or 2015 mm. like a long time ago um, how was it last so time excited. um from what i can remember it was it was interesting it, it, it wasn't a big crowd there were pretty small events um but like the fandom was hardcore I remember there was probably like a dozen people at one of because I played two shows, um, one day and then the next day. And then the, the first day, I was like so sleep deprived anyway because the traveling. And uh, I think there were only like twelve people or so there, but like they were like right on the rail, just going so hard. And it was it was kind of it was kind of cool. <laughs> like I don't when people are like really about what I do, it doesn't really matter the the you know, if there's not a lot. Because I feel like I can engage with them, particularly like after the the set, and like really, you know, feed off of their enthusiasm, and it's like it feels good. You know, it doesn't feel like I am undesired. Um, I mean, ultimately, it's like I'm, I'm I'm getting paid doing a job anyway, even if I'm playing to no one. But it feels good when you know people really appreciate it and. It's not just like a bombardment of like people, um, like yeah. I definitely prefer yeah. shows. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter how many people there are. If there's a vibe, there's a vibe. You know, I've played shows before yeah. to like fifty people or less, where it's just like a fucking vibe and a sick. And then I've yeah. played shows to like thousands of people where it's just not a vibe and it's just not that sick. Dude, and, yeah, it's not yeah, about think, quantity. <clears throat> No, it's about it's about the energy in the room, and that comes from all sorts of shit. It comes from like even like the room's layout and like the type yeah. of sound system and like the the just like ethereal sort of vague energy surrounding the event and shit like that. Dude, yeah, um, that's it's interesting. That's something I've been recently thinking about, like the <clears throat> the actual structure of the room itself, like how the sound system is and how the sound like reflects and transmits through the room really affects the like I kind of think of a crowd as like like a crowd of people it's like if there's enough people it's easier to reach like this critical mass of energy where it's like everyone starts to react in a very similar way but if the room is doesn't sound right like for instance I find that like venues that are really reflective like the like the Hampton Coliseum. I I, I'm, I'm not familiar there. with that one. Um, it's in that? it's in the Hampton. It's like down near Florida or something. But that one, I, I played there once with Ganja, and it sounded so fucking bad. It's like just imp it's impossible to make a room yeah. like that sound good. It's just a giant like 
I think usually it's like maybe a stadium for sports events or something, but yeah. like uh, the First Bank Center is a good example as well. It's a, when when they get uh, the First Bank Center doesn't sound that bad, but Hampton Coliseum, at least from where I was standing, it mostly sounded like reverb. Like I couldn't yeah. actually even like make out a lot of the details of the of the songs and stuff. That's the thing. My um, I was thinking like the the Hollywood Palladium. I don't know if you ever played that, but it's not mm-hmm. like a it's not like a stadium but it's pretty huge and round like and it's very reflective and i find that certain kinds of music where a lot of the liveliness and like juice of the music is in the detail when that gets blurred over um you're really just left with like it just it doesn't hit for most people in the audience and i think the vibe of that just it kind of just dissipates the vibe and it's hard for people to really cohere into like one flow um yeah especially if your music is like kind of details based and if it's missing all of the detail it kind of defeats like half of the point of all the time that you spent on it and stuff yeah have you you ever played sorry go on I was just going to say, so something I've been doing to kind of like get a sense of if a song is going to translate is I'll just throw, I'll just put reverb on the master and see, <laughs> is there an overall like general form that's still strong even when it's blurred? It's kinda, Will you use just any reverb or you use like a convolution one with a space or something? Ideally, I'll find one, I'll find like a, what I want to do is I feel like it should be standardized for like venues to have impulse responses of their rooms so that they can send to but are you really before. like are you really going to take like your 30 date tour and mix it for every single venue no but i'll i'll test out to see what songs definitely don't translate well <laughs> and right. then maybe inform i don't know inform my decision making around that i feel like i would just it would just be a peace of mind thing but i've just been using like hybrid reverb on algorithm mode um yeah true. just to kind of you, simulate that have you ever played flash in dc no i don't think so that's the the best sounding venue i reckon in america they they have a function one in there it's tiny it's like a 200 cap room and on all of the walls, they've covered it with jeans, like thick, like <laughs> really? denim. Yeah, it's like a couple of inches thick of denim on every single surface. And apparently denim is like really good for that, for treatment. But it, yeah, it basically sounds dead in there. It's like the closest club I think that I've heard to just like a studio monitoring type environment. See, that sounds awesome. I bet everything translates well there. Yeah, I love playing it, even though it's like not, not big or anything. It's It's... That's a room that's got a good vibe. Like the layout of the room is good. When there's people in there, it feels like tight and gets all sweaty and shit and nice. just sounds super nice in there. I yeah, played a show in um I played a show in Vegas like a a week or two ago and the speakers were on the roof, which was weird. Like they were hanging from the roof. Like all of the speakers. there was like two, 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 like just a line of speakers on the roof. Were they like angled downwards or yeah, how yeah. are they configured? Yeah, they were, like, hanging from the roof where the drivers were, like, pointing towards the floor. But I, I imagine wow. they were probably, like, angled in some way. But, yeah, it was weird. I didn't think it was ideal at all. Yeah. That seems more like an, like an aesthetic choice than a <laughs> sonic... Well, I, I think this place is usually, like, an art gallery, so they probably, like, normally play, you know, environmental sounds out of those speakers on the roof or something like that. 
That makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, huh. do you smoke weed? <laughs> On and off. Um, mm. Do you smoke yeah. weed in China? Apparently it's like crazy illegal there. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> drugs are so illegal in both China and Japan. Um, no, I was completely sober in both, which was kind of nice to just like not have to worry about that. Um, although I was offered like a shot of vodka, like just from the bottle right as I was done my set in China, which was like, which I took. I was like, fuck it. Like celebrate. Finally, I'm done this super it's anticipatory, so, stressful thing. And it was it's, nice. It's so bizarre that weed is illegal, but alcohol is legal. Like, so I, <laughs> yeah. I never ever see a person on weed like losing their shit, just blacked out, trying to fight people, or like oh, yeah. going like, "Oh, I can definitely drive my car at sixty, like hundred miles an hour on the fucking freeway." And like, alcohol is is such a like I've been addicted to a lot of shit, and I've done like fucking like every substance, and I still think that alcohol is one of the most potent, grotty substances that you can do. Damn. And it's, like, wild that that that's the legal one. Like, there's so many other substances that, like, keep you way more... Like, even if the government's, like, like idea of of legalizing it was to try and, like, keep the... um, you know, population like Placid or something like that. So they, <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the worst way of doing it, right? To keep, to keep people, so, I mean, because it it kills the most people out of any any substance, I think. Yeah, that or maybe cigarettes, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I wonder though, like if ketamine was legal, if that would just start killing way more people. It probably would. Like people would probably just start driving on it, and there'd be like pile ups on every highway like i don't think <laughs> driving on that is safe either but yeah i don't yeah. know i i definitely feel like alcohol is is like the most potent one and the one that like has the some of the craziest adverse side effects yeah i mean the thing about alcohol like versus ketamine is alcohol is like very for a lot of people it's very activating like it's even though it's like it it's like a depressant it makes people um, like move and do things that otherwise maybe they wouldn't like. It's, yeah, like uh, lowers your it's inhibitions. Enabling. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I, I feel like every person reacts differently to every substance, but um, I think yeah. If like I, I wouldn't imagine ketamine being like that comparable to alcohol in the sense of like people are going to be like motivated to go out and like do stuff and fight people <laughs> no, Maybe no, PCP. but, but I, I think <laughs> i think if people did ketamine at the level that people do alcohol it would yeah. ruin society way more for sure actually because I, yeah. I feel like nothing would ever get done <laughs> like everyone would just be <laughs> high all the time sitting probably, at home probably watch, yeah watching youtube videos and not showering for weeks at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I'm not too familiar with. Uh, I'm not too familiar with with ketamine. I, I've done it occasionally, but um, I do. I have seen, like here where I live, it seems to be pretty prevalent in the in the music scene. And in Denver, you're in Denver still, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, huge in Denver, definitely. Yeah. Wait, so so the uh, tour that you're doing right now is for a new album, right? Yeah, technically it is, because uh, it just coincides, and um, mm. you know I'm playing some new, new tunes off the album. Um, is the kinda... album out yet, or is it? 
Yeah, so it came out uh, October 13th. Uh, it's called Is Bridges it Between. Bridges Between one? Yeah, nice. Yeah. Cool. Um, I haven't I haven't listened to it yet. I, actually, I've, I've heard a couple of these. I'll need to take a proper listen at some point. I'm curious, yeah. when, when you're mixing, and I assume you master your own stuff for digital distribution, mm-hmm. do you true peak limit your stuff or do you just clip it? Um, I don't do true peak limiting, no. I <laughs> I don't do it because <clears throat> I find that um, at least what I'm using Pro L2, it doesn't sound like it sounds like I'm getting significantly less gain, <laughs> like loudness, basically, if I'm using True Peak Limiting. Um, some, sometimes it makes the transient sound softer, even if I have like the look ahead at zero. Um, I just don't really like it, and I don't like. I've not really found any evidence of it being necessary. Um, mm. Yeah, but, I've been I've been yeah. mixing my album at the moment, and I've been like tossing up on whether or not to use True Peak limiting because I I had everything clipped at first. Like I've fucking mastered this album now like six times. I'm so sick of it, and Damn. I'm doing it again because I threw them all into RX and used the waveform stats module to look at it, and I was yeah. like, wow, there's like like 2000 peaks that go over like 4 dB and wow. the the actual peak of it if you put it in Ableton was negative 1 but th- mm. they become apparent when you put them in Ableton and then turn warping on or um, obviously like when they go to Spotify all of your stuff has to get converted to MP3 and the quality <sighs> yeah. of that converter is unknown so it's possibly questionable quality. I, I assume they probably use a good quality one. It's fucking Spotify, but, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I don't know. Like I was chatting with Colfred about it, and he he suggested doing it. So I'm, uh, I was just clipping and then having it be clipped at negative one dB to take into account the true peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, but but now I'm, yeah, considering doing true peak limiting. Do do you just clip to zero then, or do you clip to negative one? Um. Yeah, I clipped to zero. Yeah. Mm, and it's never been a problem, you don't think? I don't think so. I'm kind of at the point where, like, I'm kind of at the point where, like, if I'm not perceiving it being a problem, then I'm not going to I'm not going to worry about it being a problem. Yeah, um, I feel that actually. <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at. I do like to hear other people's takes on it. Like if if there is an example where it's like, oh, that's apparent that it is better doing it this way in this certain case or like in this setting, like through this sound system or something, then um, it might reevaluate like my con- like how I'm considering. It, it, I'll reconsider. Um, right. But like I, I kind of just don't like doing things for the sake of like just because it's how, you, how you're supposed to do it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, honestly, maybe I should just, like, not worry about it. I, yeah, I was, I don't know why I'm worrying about it. Like, it, I can't really hear the difference. And actually, with True Peak Limiting, you're right, it does, like, sound kind of, like, less heavy. Like, in the transient slap less hard. But mm-hmm. if I do a True Peak Limit Master and then a Clipped Master and then I do a Phase Difference all that you get out of that phase difference is distortion. Like yeah. just so so part of it is like I, I think like our tolerances as a society for distortion has just been raised so much over the last like ten years. 
Yeah, that, I think so too. Like stuff that gets produced now that you would consider clean. If you listen to that in like 2010, you'd be like, wow, that's so distorted. But I think it's slowly become normalized. So I think perhaps these days that kind of stuff matters less than ever. Yeah. So maybe I won't yeah. do it, I don't know. That's, it's, I, th- I think, so I've been thinking about that too. Um, I think what what's happening is, you know, we're slowly increasing loudness more and more and clipping shit more and more. I think that's also changing how, particularly in electronic music, bass music, um, how producers are sound designing and using sounds. Like, you can have, if you, all of your sounds are basically like square wave based sounds, um, you know, you can clip the shit out of it and it'll still pretty much sound like the same. If it's like, you know, if it's all, if all of the waveforms are very like clipped anyway, then, you know, you, you can, you can push it really hard and it won't really like lose its, its tonal characteristics. And, uh, if you write a song where you are using those sounds like from the start, then you're going to have a song that lends itself to that kind of sound design and that kind of clipping. Um, yeah, it's almost like true peak limiting won't fix it at that point anyway. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, if, all, if your whole song is square waves, I'm just using this as an example, then... Um, and if you make it sound good, like like chiptune music, for instance, if it's all like square waves and basic basic shapes that are already like very hard edged, then it doesn't matter how loud it is or how loud you you you, you squash it. Really, it's still going to sound interesting and good because you're composing it with that kind of sound design. Um, and I think that's something that's been like in bass music lately. Um, I mean, when I say lately, over the past, like, f- several years, there's a lot more sounds that are clipped, and that's what is sought. That's the kind of sound that's sought after. It's not necessarily just an artifact of trying to make something loud. Does does, does, does that make sense? I feel like I'm not... Yeah, you're saying, like, the well. that kind of clipped sound is almost like a stylistic trait that people kind of want these days. Yeah, and I think because of that, our ears as a, like collectively are used to you know we're we're more accepting of clipped and distorted type of sounds um, mm. because distortion i mean you can have like really short punchy drums that are really distorted and but like really controlled sounding and that's going to sound way better than having like some kind of like really warm evolving pad that is randomly clipping, like obviously distorted in different places. Like those are two situations where they're both being distorted, but one sounds like it's sound. on purpose, and the other one sounds like it's a mistake. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Is your process for mixing and mastering just you do it kind of all in the session that you're writing from, and just aim for specific targets for luffs and the amount of sub level and the amount of brightness and stuff? Or when you get to the end of an album, like the one you just finished, do you kind of like stem everything out and move it all to a new session or something like that? So a little bit of both. This last album, I how I went about it was um, I basically mixed everything in the session that I composed it. And then... Um, 
I do like I kind of master it. I gently will like do like a I'll do like a tonal balance EQ and then a little bit of like multiband compression to kind of just like make sure that the lows are controlled and shit isn't like too harsh. Um, and then I'll render that without a limiter. And then I'll bring what I did was, yeah, I basically did that for every song rendered like I call them unmaximized masters. And then I'll bring them into um, like all of them into a new session, line them up to make sure that there's enough, you know, to have the appropriate amount of silence in between each song. Um, and then that's going to that's the session where I do the, like the final like loudness matching and any kind of like EQ or like D harshness shit <laughs> that I would do. Um, and uh, yeah, I basically use like for that, I'm, I'm, I'm using ozone, a little bit of soothe um, and uh, tonal balance control, which is really nice um, just to make sure, you know, just to visually see that everything is like on a target slope, um, mm. which is basically you, just pink noise. <laughs> right. Have you messed with, well, you can load your own targets into it too, I think. Mm -hmm. Like you can load a track in and then see how close you are to that track or whatever. Have you messed with um, Ozone 11 yet? There's an Ozone 11 already? Yeah, it's sick. There's a few modules in there that are really cool. There's one called Clarity, which is kind of like the opposite of Soothe. It takes like a bunch of bins and boosts and cuts them. It's basically like Soothe, but it works in both directions instead of just one direction. So Soothe, you put it on and it just oh, tames man. resonances. But this Clarity mm -hmm. one, you put it on and it tames resonances and puts boosts in other spots to kind of flatten it out more. And it, it actually sounds pretty good. I've been using it a lot on Dude, my latest masters. That sounds awesome because it's like introducing dynamics in a favorable way or introducing like, I mean, I haven't tried it, but I'm assuming um, I have an idea of what that's like. Is it anything like Gulfos? Because Gulfos kind of does. Yeah, it is too. like Gulfos, but I think it's, I think it's, so whenever I've used Golfos in the past, I can't really hear what it's doing. Like I can turn this shit to like max amounts and I'm like, it doesn't sound that much different to me. Yeah. But with this one, I put it on like 30% and I can hear a pretty substantial difference. Sick. I got to try this. Yeah. yeah there's another module that they put in there as well called Stabilizer, which is kind of the same thing, I think, but mm. it's like more broadband instead of more like spectral bins. That's in Ozone 10, I think. Oh, okay. I never use it in 10. I only just started using it in 11. But yeah, so it's, I guess, clarity is kind of like that, but with finer bands. Do you find that it's more like it's good for like tonal stuff or is it responsive to like percussive stuff too? I've been mostly using it on uh, masters. So okay. I would say more tonal dynamic stuff. I, yeah, I haven't really messed around too much with, with it in like the mix phase. That's cool. That that makes me think about. Um, there's another module in Ozone 10 called uh, Impact. Mm, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've messed with that, but yeah, that's in 11 as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's. It's like a. They call it like a micro dynamics module, and it really got me thinking about like songs, like the micro dynamics of songs, and basically what that is is like really short time scale. Uh, dynamics like I find that I tend to make a lot of music that's like a wall of sound 
and particularly with doing like the master reverb test, uh, it becomes really apparent that like it's there isn't really that much detail when it comes to like percussiveness in the in high end frequencies and this uh, impact module it's like you could split the spectrum into four bands you could boost and cut and when you boost basically what it does is it's it's like an envo- it's like a it's kind of like a transient designer or like um yeah, yeah it turns like, a, like, like a transient enhancer. in that range it just either turns it up or down by a certain amount by a musical value or a millisecond value that you decide right yeah and it, like if it's if it's it's very responsive to like percussive stuff. So like a snare, you'll be able to like boost the top end of the snare just on the just like on the the first I don't know, you know, hundred milliseconds or so, or whatever you set the envelope time to, and it can really make something sound a lot more like open and and lively and and wide, and that got me thinking about how I've been just mixing shit. I find that a lot of times if you're to make something that's to make something sound to make a song sound like really loud but also really dynamic, um, something that's like a, a really easy fix to like a very squashed, noisy mix is like use a high shelf and lower like everything above 10k or like 8k by a few dB, and then just boost your hi hats. <laughs> Like boost the boost that top end of your hi hats to bring that back, and it creates top end microdynamics that makes your mix sound a lot fuller and less fatiguing. Mm. And this module kind of does that. Um, I've been doing a similar thing with my masters actually on this new album, which is uh, I will EQ the sides, but I'll remove all of the high frequencies in the sides below about or above uh, like maybe five or six k. Like I'll just get rid of them all. So it's like the sides are just like warm and yeah. then you can actually make it wider as well without it getting like harsh and sounding all smeared and stuff like that, which is like this weird counterintuitive thing that I, I never really like tried it before because it didn't make any sense. Like, oh, what if I, I was always like boosting the sides, like in boosting the highs in the side channels because I wanted like really bright, wide sort of mixes, but I've been doing yeah. the opposite lately and I really like the sound of it actually. Shit. That's, I gotta try that because I've been doing the same thing. Like, well, for, it's kind of it's kind of the, the same theory. It's like it makes all of your high frequencies, like your hi hats and stuff that isn't spread, just mono and clean and yeah. like very defined, and doesn't have all yeah. this like smeary shit around it. Fuck yeah, I'm I'm trying to try that. Cool. Thanks mm. for that. Thanks for the tip. Yeah, no worries. What what um what like uh. Metrics were you trying to hit on the new album in terms of like lofts and amount of sub level and stuff like that? So, mm, I think I was trying to hit minus six or minus five. I'm not sure. Um, I feel like mi- minus six is like pretty reasonable. I feel like when you start to get to minus five, stuff starts to fall apart a bit, and minus four and above is just like I have a few tracks on the al- on my my album that are minus four. Mm-hmm. And they're like barely staying together. It's like they're on the brink of completely complete distortion, basically. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, that's. I, there are some artists that will. Where it's like that's surprisingly clear and loud. 
and it's I'm always like, what the fuck are they doing? I think it's the samples and sound and like the type of sound design that they use, like I was saying. But like, I find that the way that I compose and the types of sounds and shit that I use, like it does. I feel the same way. Like anything above five, it doesn't really work really well. Um, but here, let me just double check. I'm gonna. I don't even remember what the left value was. Uh, let me just check with the loudness meter on one of the drops. I think it was <laughs> five, but. Yeah, for mine, I've, I've been trying to aim for a sub-level of negative 3 dB in the drops and about mm. negative 6 or below in the breakdowns. And then luffs-wise, yeah, anywhere between negative 7 and negative 4. But tending yeah. to be more in the middle of that more of the time, like negative 6 or something. Yeah, so it looks like, yeah, my song Bridges, the short-term luffs on the drop is basically minus 5 and my sub level is hitting, um, uh, it's hitting like uh, minus seven. It's, a, it's oh, wow. a little light on that. But um, how I was, how I was like, I use spectrum to level my subs actually because of one of your tutorials like years ago, like how to precisely level sub. Yeah, where you just That's like been use the changer. range control. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's been a game changer to match my kicks with my bass sub. So my kicks actually, I have lower usually. I have those at like negative seven or negative six, but I have the sub at like negative three. Oh shit! Okay. Yeah, that's I don't know. I don't know why. I just always feel like it sits better that way. And if I make the kicks and the sub the same, I feel like they, like I always feel like there's not enough sub. And then if I raise the kick to be the level of the sub, I always feel like the the kick distorts. Hmm. Yeah, my, my remedy for that is, well, ah. Just use a click for the kick, basically. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of kind of, I've been trying out a lot of new things. There really isn't like one solid method that I use. Um, but what I've, what I've been doing for a few songs on this album is routing my kick and snare. So like I'll, I'll have a, I'll process my kick and snare to where they're just like clipping to zero and they sound really good. Like they're not, they don't sound distorted. What I'll do is I will, I'll mute them in the drum rack, and then I will use a, a compressor or something that that has a sidechain listen function, and I'll route the sidechain to the kick and the snare on the master after any of the processing, any like ozone or whatever. Um, so it's basically like I'll. I'll take the kick and the snare and route it to after the master processing of everything else. You could also just do it by using like, you know, groups. All of your instruments except the kick and snare get processed, mm. and then at the at the end, the kick and snare is like basically just inserted on top. That's um, actually that, a trick that Noisier did for a, or they maybe still do, but it's a basically what they would do is they would master their track get it like all smashed and sounding nice and loud. And then they would put the wave file back into Cubase and then they would replace all of the transients on all of the drums by hand on the final mastered wave <laughs> with clean transients, which is essentially the same Damn. thing as what it you're is, doing, yeah. but you're just doing it in a way easier way. Yeah, I, I did try this. I like after I heard that, I, I tried it on one of the new tracks on one of my album, um, on one of the new album tracks. And uh, it definitely sounded better, but there's no fucking way I'm going to do that for every track. It's like way too much work. So I think actually Manually I might, now. I might try what you mentioned. That, that's pretty smart. Yeah. I'm also using, um, I'm also using duck buddy for, uh, side training, um, which is nice because it has, um, the, pr it has the 
the look ahead function. And if you have like a little bit of millis like a couple milliseconds of silence before you're transient, that ensures that any like low frequency tails or like DC offset isn't going to interfere with your transient and like you know reduce its headroom. Because I find that that happens a lot where like you'll have like a bass tail or the side chain doesn't come in fast enough and the transient of your drum gets like pushed up or down and then clipped and it's like why does that sound so weak? Um, mm. It's because it just doesn't have that gap right before the transient. Yeah, so that stuff I do actually do by hand. I okay. like stem my stuff uh, when I'm ready to mix it and put it in a new session. And I go through my entire stems and like right before every drum, put a little fade on everything else. <laughs> Manually? Yeah. Damn. Which I is mean... a pain in the ass, <laughs> but like, yes, yeah, it works. I, I should look into Duck Buddy, to be honest. <laughs> so, like... so an alternative, I actually, I actually was taking a walk yesterday and I thought of this. I was like, what would an alternative be for someone who doesn't use Duck Buddy or like already has everything mixed and doesn't want to like replace their shit? Or use a different DAW, because Duck Buddy is Max for Live. Um, what you can do is use a like a really fast uh, gate or compressor as a sidechain, like basically as like your sidechain compressor. Just route it like you normally would to like a, a ghost kick or like click or something. But um, use latency delay. Um, there's this free plugin called uh, M Utility by Melda Production, and it has a delay module in there uh, and what you can do so basically what, what you do is uh, before your sidechain compressor you put um, M utility add like I don't know three milliseconds of delay before you compress and then afterwards add another M utility and uh, there's a button in the delay module that's called report as latency and it's like negative delay so basically it will reshift the track back in time um, the same amount of milliseconds that you delayed it, and it will give you that little fade before the sidechain compressor activates. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's a definitely a way to do it. And another way to do it is just put everything that's not your drums inside one group and put just a delay on it with zero feedback and 100% dry wet and just add a few milliseconds, right? That's, yeah, yeah, basically that. It's like the same thing, uh, just a different mm. way to go about it. Yeah, your, your way definitely seems smarter and, yeah. I feel like, the yeah, the, by the sounds of it, the way that you set stuff up sounds like it would make a really good template for mixing because it sounds like you've got everything kind of automated to happen to do all of the things that one should do to make like a quote-unquote like perfectly produced track or whatever do you use a template or do you just kind of do this every time i i do have a template but i i find myself like not really liking it <laughs> like every time mm. i'm like yeah this is going to be like the new standard for this year of how i'm going to make shit i end up like not liking it um and then changing shit anyway but uh, my template is basically a um four groups I have drums, and inside that I have a drum rack and like, a, like, tops group, which already has like a s gentle side chain compressor to the kick and the snare drum rack, and then I have effects, which is just not being processed, and then I have uh, synths and basses, and the synths and basses are getting sent to a side chain send, um, and then on that I have a duck buddy that has uh, a nice curve that 
I like to use for side chaining. And my kick drum, my kick and snare, I have a side chain trigger in the drum rack for my kick and snare. Um, at the bottom, below, like, below the kick and snare, there's just like another cell that's like basically just a side chain trigger. And I have both a, a muted audio click in case I want to use a compressor somewhere and manually do that. But then the other thing is an external instrument to uh, send MIDI out to, you know, whatever. Uh, the Duck Buddy can take MIDI, but I'll send it to it anyway. Um, yeah, I've been just doing audio for side chaining using Kickstart for a while now, which honestly I think sounds pretty good. Does that use audio trigger? Like, can that take audio as a trigger? It can actually do both, but yeah, I usually just use audio. And nice. it seems fine. I, I haven't really noticed any issues with it. I haven't used that. Yeah, it's um, a Shaper Box plugin. It's literally like 10 bucks. And can it do, works really well. Does it do multiband too? It can do one multiband. So basically, it has a, like a band button uh -huh. and then one slider. And the slider defines like uh, it's just compressing everything, sidechain compressing everything below the point which you set. So if you set it mm. to like 500 hertz, then it's just doing everything below 500 hertz. It doesn't have nice. like multi-band in the sense that it, like it has three bands or whatever, and each different one has its own yeah. Same, yeah. special curve. Yeah, I. Okay, that's cool. That seems super useful and simple too like that's basically mm. all you really need I feel like. yeah that's why i like it it's simple it's like very lightweight and it's easy to set up it like it doesn't you can't even draw curves in it it literally just gives you like 10 curves to choose from and Damn. i kind of like that as well like less option paralysis with it i just pick yeah. one and just that's it's done <laughs> can you choose the time though like the length yeah. of the curve yeah you okay. can yeah. yeah yeah i feel like that's all you really need <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like it's like the ten shapes that you would ever use, basically. And honestly, out of all of them, I probably only ever use like three of them, mm. and it seems to do the job. So wait, other than uh, Duck Buddy, um, what else are you using for mixing and mastering? Like, what are you using for a multiband compressor, and what are you using for like a limiter and stuff? So for so for mixing and sound design, my go-to like multiband compressor is really just a preset. It's really just a macro rack that I made for um, Ableton's multiband dynamics. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's kind of like OTT, but like linear. So I have a threshold control that controls all three bands up and down, up and down, like, yeah, the upward part and the downward part. Um, dial shit in really quickly. But for mastering though, uh, I like to use. Yeah, I pretty much only use ozone. Um, I like the sound of the crossovers. They're it's like low latency, but it's like linear phase, and um, I like the visual. I like how there's like a limiter and a compressor uh, threshold separately. Mm. Um, trying to think what else I use. Something recently that I've been using is Spectral Compressor, which is this. It's a free open source plugin. It's it's like hard to find, but. Um, yeah, it's called yeah, Spectral Compressor. It's only VST3. Uh, it's for both Mac and Windows, but it is this. It's basically like uh, like it's M like Spectral Dynamics kind of. It is. It's like M Spectral Dynamics. Although I find it a lot easier to use, and you can do things like set the attack and release times to zero, is so you can do clipping. 
Robert VDH? Is it this guy? Uh, let me see. I, there's this thing I just found on GitHub, and it's called Spectral Compressor yes. by a guy. Yeah, and he's like, ever, ever wondered what a 16,384 band OTT would sound like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah you could you could do that extreme bands it does upward and downward compression um, and you can also set the band count down to like I think 32 so you can do some really like cool textual shit um, I love it uh, that's something that I will that's something that I use to control the low end like recently that's something that I've been using to like compress the low end really precisely and um, yeah, it's really neat because you also have like a spectral tilt and a spectral curve module inside of it. How does it it's compare like, to M spectral dynamics? Um, it's more, it's like much more user friendly. There's less parameters. Uh, M spectral dynamics can do other things though, like have you can have like a custom curve, it can do like spectral gating. That's something that and that that uh, spectral compressor can't do unless you use like a parallel chain with an inverted like a like basically create like a delta rack for it. Um, M spectral dynamics can't do upward compression though; it can only do expansion and uh, downward compression. But uh, but it also has like that naturalize and smoothing. Which spectral compressor doesn't do? I don't know. They're just different. They're they're just different. I think M spectral dynamics is like better for. It's more versatile, um, but uh, spectral compressor is just like it's it's just funner to use, and you can get like faster results with it. I'd say, and it's free, so mm. I can't complain. True. <laughs> do you worry about linear phase stuff much during the any other process other than on your master channel? Like what are what are some instances where you actually care about linear phase? If I'm EQing, well, actually, even that, not really. I was gonna say if I'm EQing a kick drum, um, linear phase is best because sometimes what I'll do is use an oscilloscope, uh, an envelope triggered oscilloscope to like sculpt my drum waveform like really precisely, and. If you're using a linear phase EQ, you can do like pretty narrow cuts and boosts, like bell cuts and boosts, um, without creating phase shift. And so what that looks like on the oscilloscope, on the waveform view, is basically just like different parts of the kick get like boosted and 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 um, like yeah, boosted or reduced, as opposed to if you're using a minimal phase EQ. Um, or analog phase EQ, the parts that you're boosting or cutting, it will like basically change the shape of the waveform um, mm. horizontally. Um, if you're doing any kind of like low cut with a analog phase EQ, you're going to get phase like especially with low frequencies. Like if you do like a a high pass filter at like 30 hertz, it's going to extend the tail of the kick drum pretty substantially because of like the phase shift that it introduces. And even though you may be trying to reduce low end to increase the headroom or something. Yeah, you end up adding more. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I find that 
linear phase a lot good. with um, non-linear phase stuff. It's like I'll put a like EQ8 on something, and I'll take out an amount of some frequency, and then it starts clipping. <laughs> it's yeah. like, what's going on? It seems, yeah. I know, it seems counterintuitive, but phase, yeah, man, phase is a very real thing. It's tricky mm. because a lot of times, like, like for, for the first, for, like, a long time, I did not consider, like, phase. Like, particularly, like, frequency-based, like, frequency-specific phase stuff. And I was like, what, why is this, why is this, ha why is shit just getting muddy when I'm trying to clean it up? Um, but it's because of yeah. Why is shit clipping when I'm when I'm when I'm cutting frequencies out? <laughs> uh, mm. But yeah, it's because of phase rotation. So yeah, yeah specifically, I found the place that I care about it the most is when doing it after a clipper. When using anything mm -hmm. with splits after a clipper, like if it's uh, a multiband compressor or if it's an EQ or whatever it is, I find if you clip something to where like all of the dynamics are sitting exactly where you want and then you put anything after it that's not linear phase and it has splits in it, it just like basically puts you back to square one <laughs> and you like might as well have not clipped it in the first place. It like adds all this like volume and like peaks and dips and shit where it shouldn't be, which is like not something you can really hear, but it's something you can see, I feel like, on a graph. Yeah, you could see it. And I think you can hear it if you're processing afterwards. Right. Um, like if you're trying to clip it again, you'll be able to hear that there's, you know, it's different. Um, which some in some cases, like for sound design, can be really cool. Something that I like to do is like if I'm making like respaces uh, where I'm using like a saw, detuned saw wave or sine wave and adding noise and then clipping that uh, and then using like an EQ to like basically using a bunch of saturators in series. Um, if I introduce like a little bit of phase shift with like just adding like an EQ3, for instance, which is just like a three band split that, you know, you can change the volume of each band. Just just the just the um, the crossovers of EQ3, putting it before like a bunch of saturators can drastically change the sound of it. And it's basically the same as like disperser. I mean. Disperse is just an extreme version of that. Um, you're just introducing mm. like a ton of phase shift around a certain frequency range. And uh, yeah, when you clip that afterwards, it changes the shape of the waveform and the sound of it drastically. Mm. Something I've been doing a lot in my mixes lately is using shaper box to add, uh, I don't even know what you would call it. I guess it's like additive mixing in a way. So for instance, if you have like a bass that's like womp, then I would put shaper box with a volume curve that just gets a certain part of that womp, like whether it's the tail, so you get like the at the end, or if you get the <clears throat> at the start, like the, the bit. And then I'll put it in a rack next to a dry version of the signal and then EQ like just one of the ranges of that bass. So it's like you can take so, sort of like the tail of the womp and just have like a very low mid version of it that's layered yeah. with a dry version of the original sound to get this like extra sort of low mid warmth into it or something. And I found honestly that has been a lot less uh, destructive sounding and just a lot cleaner sounding than doing the equivalent with like an EQ automation or something. Wow. Dude, that's really, that's, I want to, that's sick. I've never thought to try that. So you're saying, okay, so you're saying like you have the dry, you're basically creating a, like a, 
a layer on top of it that isolates a certain frequency range and then shaping that to right like yeah exactly and then exactly like so making like a certain range have more of a certain dynamic that you want yeah and i found uh, that it's actually like a super clean way of mixing and i actually learned it from culprit as well we did a collab for the new album and he he was like uh, he didn't like the mixes i was doing so i sent him the stems and he did a mix and it was way better than my mix obviously and yeah. he uh i was looking through the session and noticed he just does it on like everything so Dude, I was like, wow, oh, it's a cool trick. So I started doing it as well, and uh, I've been really enjoying it. It's like it's it, you have like a shitload of control. I feel like doing stuff that way. That is fucking cool. It's interesting. That's similar to something that I recently started doing. Um, oftentimes, I find that like using automation to do EQ, like doing EQ automation, it's like actually drawing an automation curve. It isn't that even though it's like super precise, I find that it's not that creatively stimulating. Like sometimes it can break the flow because I'm just like, well, there's just too much going on. I'm mousing around too much. Um, something that I've been trying is using serum effects as uh, a way to kind of introduce like EQ movement, basically just like use one of the LFOs, um, modulate like an EQ boost uh, with uh, with the LFO, put that on an already existing sound that kind of has some movement in it, and then just move the LFO points around um, until it like accentuates the right part of the frequency spectrum that sounds. Yeah, so that, that's literally the same thing, but just with certain effects. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like with the shaper box method, because you're doing volume instead, like that's the f it. It's it's a more phase stable version of that because you're not you know with an eq when you're boosting and cutting something it's it's dynamically changing the the phase response of the sound versus like just adding a layer of that on top of it i mean you're i don't know i feel like it's probably cleaner that way overall Mm, yeah, and you can sort of go the other way with it too on the dry signal if you want. Um, you can do like the inverse shape and that way it's like you get one that's like boosting whilst the other one's cutting and stuff. And Yeah. It's basically like you're building your True. own multiband dynamic EQ but with no splits kind of. Yeah. And like, well, I mean, so the way that he was doing the splits actually was with Pro MB on linear phase mode and then he would just like create a band and then solo that band solo on one it, yeah. and then duplicate the pro MB to the other one and mute the band on the other one. Oh shit. Okay. And then that way it's like in some instances it was a layer and then in some instances it was replacing that frequency range yeah. with a different movement basically. Yeah. But if it's in linear phase either way, there's no, there's not going to be any like phase cancellation happening. It's like, that's mm. the cleanest way to do it. Right. Exactly. It's but, sick. um, I guess the, uh, the downside is that you to do that have to have two devices that are running linear phase versus maybe that's just true. one if you're doing it with a single eq that's true you know what we could do is just use one linear phase device and then create a a phase like you create like a like a phase cancellation rack so it just mm. cancels out the the part that's <laughs> soloed and then yeah, you don't just, have to use uh, a second device. Over-engineer over it just to squeeze like every little bit of juice out of your processor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, I my bladder is extremely full. Give me, oh, give me one yeah. minute. No worries, go right for back. it. Yep. All right.
Yo. So actually, I might get back to this mastering session that I've been at for the last three months and also maybe get some food. But it was awesome chatting with you for a bit. I appreciate you coming on again. And I, I feel like this whole podcast was just me asking you, how do I mix my album better? But I think hopefully <laughs> people will find it interesting. Uh, dude, yeah, anytime. My pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah likewise. Be yeah, feel free to hit me up whenever about any, if you need a second opinion on uh yeah do you mind if i send you some masters and have a listen to them and maybe let me know if they're good dude yeah please do by all means all right cool i'll send some after we jump off this call cool man thanks sick all right man well yeah thanks again and um yeah have a good night yeah you too bill take it easy peace Yo, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. This show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo. You can get early access to the show by going to my website, mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon. And remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat, upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner. Note, I may or may not do those last couple of things. Uh, you should probably just go rate it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast. Um, but but just know that, that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that. So uh, just, just putting that out there. I know what I'm